Radio Mano Papachango. Chris, my name's Eric. Um, yeah, and hello to all all you beautiful people listening to this podcast, uh, like-minded people. Um, I am currently walking a trail called the Bibbulmun Trail. It's um, named after um, the traditional custodians, Aboriginal people of the Great Southern uh, region in Western Australia. It spans from a, a town called Albany all the way up the southern ocean through the mighty Cary Forest, the Valley of the Giants, and a 1,000 kilometres up to Perth. So I'm currently um, sitting in the middle of the bush, um, the sun's setting over the ocean, and um, the orchids are dancing in the sunlight, and it's a, it's a beautiful place to be. Um, I wanted to, to send this message because um, uh, prior to going on this trail, I was... Um, using a lot of um, drugs to to nullify my pain, you know, uh, as you do, as some people do, addiction, you know. I, I was shooting up heroin and using OxyContin and Xanax and everything to to, to numb out um, some pain. So um, I was lucky enough to, you know, have this Bibbulmun Trail, this this massive hike. So um, yeah, I felt compelled to to share this message and. And to say, you know, that there's there's different avenues around um, this suffering and, and addiction. And, uh, yeah, I hope anyone out there listening to this gets the opportunity to do something like um, what I'm doing at the moment. It, it's profound. It's painfully beautiful, um, physically, emotionally and psychologically challenging. Um, and, uh, yeah, I've, I've got you in my ear, Chris. You know, I, I don't have much battery life out here, but... Um, I love your podcast, and it's it's been a uh, companion companion with me the whole way. So I love you, man. I love everyone out there, and um, peace. You know, um, yeah, the world's a crazy place at the moment, but uh, we got a, got each other around this campfire. So yeah, one love, ciao. Hi, this is Arvin from Vancouver, BC, Canada. I just wanted to thank you for your profound words on love at the intro of your recent episode interviewing Mr. Bregman. That was very well put and beautifully stated as always, and it really resonated with me, and I just wanted to thank you for that. And just a general comment that I I think we're all constantly in search of, of some guidance and wisdom. And um, I think that's lacking in our society and a culture in North America, which is why self-help books are flying off the shelves as quickly as they are. And I just want to let you know that you you provide that for me and I'm sure for countless others. So uh, I know you don't have any children, but uh, in many ways, I, I feel like you're you're the virtual father I I never quite had. So from the bottom of my heart, I, I just wanted to thank you for that. You motherfuckers are going to make me cry. Um, Thank you, Arvin and Eric, both of you and everyone else who's been in touch uh, recently or not so recently. Uh, It's beautiful to be in contact with all of you. Uh, I don't know what kind of guidance I can offer or what kind of virtual fathering I can do. Uh, I think I'm more like the creepy, crazy uncle that you're afraid to invite to Thanksgiving 
Some people are afraid. Some people look forward to it just to see what the fuck he'll say this year. But in any case, uh, it's an honor to be in touch with people like you. Um, When I was listening to Eric, when at first his his message came in a week or so ago. uh, So, Eric, if you're out there, if your batteries haven't died on you and you're still on the trail, much love to you. I was thinking, um, listening to him, how... How can I say this? There's nothing uh, healthy about thriving in a sick society. And conversely, a lot of the people who are in the most pain right now are the best of us. And so it's often the most sincere, the most sensitive, the most authentic, the most honest among us who have the hardest time dealing with the situation. And, you know, whether we agree politically or not, uh, I think we all understand that we're in a shitstorm. We are in a mess and it's getting messier. And it's not just about who's the president or the prime minister of your country. Eric, or whether the uranium mines get um, expanded or shut down, or um, it's the general trajectory of Western civilization. And I think we all feel in our bones that this is not sustainable and that that has become less and less of an abstract concept in the last 10 or 15 years. You know, I remember in the 70s, 80s, reading books about how. Um, the course of civilization was not sustainable. Global population explosions. um, You know, this was before even global warming was an issue. Uh, And sustainability was a big deal, right? The first Earth Day was in 1970, 72, something like that. So these issues were definitely on the world's mental radar for, you know, a long time. But it was always this far off thing like, you know, an asteroid could come out of the sky and destroy the planet. Like, yep, that could happen. Or solar flares could wipe out the electrical system. Yep, that could happen. But it was like, yeah, it could, it could, it could, but it probably won't, at least not in my life. And now it's become much more immediate. And, um, you know, the needle on strangeness has gone just it's it's what redlining it's just all the way to the right how much weirder are things going to get even in just the next two months while uh tantrum in chief locks himself in the bathroom the latest thing i've been reading is that he's got his three um top diplomats mid-east people are in the Middle East right now uh, talking to various governments, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Israel. And he's also fired everyone with, you know, any kind of um, dignity or integrity in the Defense Department and the CIA. I guess the CIA is coming next. But the point is, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if Trump starts a war with Iran in the next two months. And then uses that as an excuse to nullify the elections. We'll see what happens. But that's the kind of thing that 
you know, even just 10 years ago would have seemed absurd outside the realm of possibility. And the realm of possibility has gotten much, much broader recently. And so returning to my point, what I was thinking when I was listening to Eric is like, you could just hear the decency in that guy's voice and the sincerity and the kindness and the sadness. And I'm not surprised that somebody like that um, has a problem and has a, a need to deaden the pain, as he says, to numb the pain. And we all do that in our different ways. And I hope that you have a lot of compassion for yourself in these days. If you're having trouble catching your breath, if you're having trouble sleeping, if you're having trouble remembering to notice the beauty around you, don't blame yourself. We're living through extraordinary times. Take a bath. Remind yourself of the decent things that you've done for other people. And if you can't remember, go do something decent. Go pick up garbage from the side of the road. Go give food to somebody. Give money to somebody. Give them a foot massage. Do whatever. Just put a little more kindness out into the world. You'll feel better. Um, yeah, so anyway, thank you for that. This episode is with a guy named Chad Hilk. Uh, maybe it's Hilke. I'm not sure. It's H-I-L-K-E. Uh, and Chad is a guy who listens to the podcast. And um, he con he's on Reddit. And there's a, a subreddit uh, devoted to tangentially speaking. And uh, I check in there occasionally and, and see what's going on. And, and I just kept noticing this one guy. His uh, handle is hip crime vocab. Uh, this one person was just uh, just saying the most thoughtful, intelligent things. Like like his comments were just so high level and and really well written and well considered. And you know, this is fucking Reddit. This isn't uh, you know edited published material. This is some guy just writing off the cuff and you know, references to all sorts of interesting books and, and authors and thinkers and um, just like, wow, really smart dude. I assumed he's a dude because it's Reddit. There aren't a lot of women on there. Um, anyway, uh, over time, he just became enough of a presence um, in my mind and in my consciousness that I wanted to know, like, who is this person? And would you be on the podcast? And he said, yes. And uh, so we connected, uh, through zoom or whatever it was. We, we weren't in the same room. I guess he's in Wisconsin and I was in Montana at the time. And, um, so we had this conversation, uh, a couple of months ago, not unlike the conversation I had with Miguel Romero, another guy I met through the podcast, although I had actually sat in a room with him at one point. Um, anyway, so I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope you do too. Um, as you know, some of my favorite conversations on this podcast are with people who are not famous, who have no interest in being famous or, you know, um, sort of public figures. Um, but they are every bit as interesting and as thoughtful and as uh, sort of 
you know, relevant as many of the people in, in the public eye. Have you guys ever read a book called Born to Run? Uh, Christopher McDougall, I think, is the author. It's a fucking great book. I really enjoyed it. It's uh, You probably heard about it. It's It's the book that sort of launched the whole barefoot running movement and um you know the idea that shoes do more damage than they than they protect because they they make you walk in unnatural ways and they cramp your feet and all this kind of stuff um i i really enjoyed that book for several reasons one is that it sort of you know reinforces my general thesis on life which is that so many of the things that are supposedly designed to protect us and, 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 you know, make life better, actually make it worse. Uh, and he makes a very strong case that Nike, uh, is built on teaching people to run the wrong way and then selling them shoes that offer them partial protection against the damage that they're doing to their bodies. Whereas they could have just learned to run the right way, the way the body, the biomechanics call for, and you never would have needed the shoes and you would have avoided the neck and back and knee and injuries. Um, he makes a strong argument in the book and I quote the book pretty heavily in one section of civilized to death. So if you're reading civilized to death, you'll, you'll read all this. Um, anyway, another reason I really enjoyed the book is that he spends a lot of time in Northern Mexico in the Barranca del Cobre, the Copper Canyon, uh, which is kind of like the Grand Canyon of Mexico. And there are Indians who live there called the Tarahumara. And as it happens, on one of my trips through Mexico, I spent some time, a couple of weeks down in the canyon, hung out with a, an anthropologist who was living with the Tarahumara. Uh, Geronimo was his name. <laughs> At least in Mexico, that was his name. His name in America was Jerry Levy. I don't know if, if I've done a a toma about that. Um, but if not, I, I will eventually. That was a hell of a trip. That was a trip where I, um, I quit a job I had in New York working on a construction site. And, uh, I went overland from Texas to Guatemala all through Mexico, no flights, just, uh, buses and trains and stuff. Took me about nine months, I think. And that was the trip that ended with the scorpion staying in Guatemala, the famous scorpion staying at Tikal. Uh, anyway, uh, yeah, it was cool to read about those Indians that I had spent time with. And, and another reason that it connected with me is that I, uh, here's a confession for you. I have very sensitive feet. I've, I've been told I have beautiful feet for a man. I have very high arches and, um, but like walking across sharp stones, I am the, that like goofball who like, ooh, ah, ooh, ah, ooh, ah. that's me. And there've been a couple of times in my life where I was barefoot enough that it stopped hurting where I could just walk more or less normally, um, where I had been, you know, barefoot for weeks at a run. And those are some of the best times of my life. Those are times I remember as being really healthy and happy and feeling good about myself. Now, I don't know if this is just some sort of like macho thing about how I should be able to walk across rocks without, uh, you know, dancing all around. Um, but there does seem to be something about 
walking across the earth with minimal separation that feels right to me. And if you know, if you agree with me, if you feel that too, then maybe you're interested in in shoes that try to um, maximize that experience, as I am. So anyway, this is all a long way of saying that uh, a few weeks ago, I was talking to a friend and I had these ch- Chaco um, uh, sandals. And I don't like them. Their soles are really heavy and stiff and... You know, I've had the uh, I've had all kinds of different hiking sandals um, because I like, as I say, I like that kind of minimal uh, approach to to being in the world as far as footwear goes. And um, and my buddy pulled out these sandals that he has from a company called Zero Shoes X E R O, and they are like the soles are like as thick as a pancake. They are, and I'm not talking a flapjack. I'm talking like a thin, you know, silver dollar pancake. Um, super, super minimal. And this guy hikes all over the mountains and, you know, he's a serious outdoors guy. And he said, man, they are fantastic. They feel like you're barefoot, but it doesn't hurt if you step on a you know piece of glass or a thorn or something, but they are as minimal as you can go. Anyway, I looked up the company and spent uh, an hour or two looking at their website. And it uh, turns out they're they're really interesting. And they have hiking boots. They have winter boots. They have all these, all different stuff. And um, and I really like their vibe. I just liked their approach. It's owned by a husband and wife. And then on their website, they've got a video of when they were on a show called Shark Tank, which I've never seen, but it's one of those, you know, reality-ish shows. You've probably seen it or heard of it. Anyway, they were on Shark Tank, and they went on there and they presented their idea for these minimal shoes that don't, um, you know, distort your biomechanics. Your, uh, your heel is even with the ball of your foot, so there's no heel to it. There's no rise and minimal cushioning and all that. And uh, one of the investors there offered them, I think it was 400 grand for half their company or something. And they were like, nah, fuck you, dude. You know, we'll give you 5% for that much money. And they walked away from a big investment. And I thought, man, that was pretty cool. I, I just like their vibe. And the the woman's got a background in um, in business and, and branding and all that. And the, her husband uh, is a sprinter. And he's like one of the fastest guys in the country over 50 or something. Anyway, um, I just really liked their stuff. And I looked on their website and I was, you know, I'm in the mountains and winter's coming and I wanted to get some snow boots and I was looking at different options and I saw that they had one and I thought, hey, maybe I can like hook, get, hook up some free shit. So I wrote to them and they sent me a bunch of boots. They sent me some sandals, the winter boots and, um, and some hiking boots. And so I spent the last couple of weeks walking around in these things, and they are awesome. So I guess this is kind of an ad, but kind of not really. Because the deal is they're not giving me any money. Uh, what they're doing is I am I said I'd talk about their stuff on, on the show, and uh, they gave me a link. And if you use the link, this special link that uh, I'll give you, they will throw in this... Um, this like pebble board that you can stand on to get that feeling of standing on rocks and you sort of move your feet around. Uh, it toughens up your feet a little bit. It's like a $15 thing. 
Uh, but they'll throw that in uh, for listeners to this podcast. I think, though, hold on, let me look at the notes. Uh, this offer expires November 25th. So if you want to, if you're thinking you might be in the market for something like this, go for it. Uh, it's the Rocks Mat, it's called R O X. Um, you want to go for it pretty soon, uh, partly because you get this uh, free Rocks Mat, but also because they're having a big sale right now. Um, and, uh, the, the boots, the Alpine, the winter boots, they're not on sale, but man, I went for literally took them out of the box, put them on and went for about a two mile hike and they felt absolutely perfect. No hot spots, no blisters, no, no difficulty at all. It's fantastic. I, I stood in a stream to make sure they were actually waterproof. I'm standing there in a freezing stream. This is water that was, you know, ice 10 minutes ago coming down the mountain. I just stood there, waited. Not only did my feet not get wet, they stayed warm. It's awesome. Anyway, so they're not giving me any money, but if you order through my link, you get that rocks pad thing for free and I get a commission, I think 10% or something on what you spend. So that's how it works. If you're in the market for boots or shoes or sandals of this type and you want to take advantage of this, Here's the link, chrisryanphd.com forward slash zero X-E-R-O-T-S for tangentially speaking. So that's chrisryanphd.com forward slash X-E-R-O-T-S. You'll see the rocks mat automatically goes in your cart. And then when you uh, order $50 or more of stuff, the $14.99 is deducted. So that's how that works. And let me know. Uh, I hope and I, I uh, assume everyone will have as positive an experience as I'm having with them. But if anybody has a problem or, uh, you know, whatever, if, if they're not as good as I think, let me know and I'll stop talking about it. Now, here's uh, a little something that seems very apropos to our current situation. I'll read you a little poem here. We are amazed but not amused by all the things you say that you'll do. Though much concerned, but not involved with decisions that are made by you. But we're sick and tired of hearing your song, telling how you're going to change right from wrong. Because if you really want to hear our views, you haven't done nothing. It's not too cool to be ridiculed, but you brought this upon yourself. The world is tired of pacifier. We want the truth and nothing else. Does that sound familiar to you? That's a song called You Haven't Done Nothing by Stevie Wonder. And uh, I think it's sung to the political class. And it's as relevant today as when he first sang those words. Hope you enjoy this podcast. Thank you for listening. I will talk to you again soon. See
gentlemen i am uh speaking with chad chad how how the hell did this happen this is uh this is an interesting episode i think it's i've had people on the podcast before who were listeners uh for sure but normally they were listeners i got to know them and then you know had them on the podcast later uh but you and i don't know each other this is a a virgin experience here yeah, and if it's strange for you, uh, think of how it is for me. <laughs> Just some <laughs> kind of random dude in the uh, in the Midwest. Um, I don't know if you know this. You probably don't remember this. But you actually, uh, I think I, I came to your attention on the, the Reddit board. And you actually uh, mentioned one of my Reddit posts to Joe Rogan. Oh, did I? Which one? Yeah. Uh, so you were on Joe Rogan's show and you said something about this guy on this internet, a guy on Reddit said something, and it was a post I had made about um, him being an example of combining kind of hunter-gatherer type of ways and ways of being in the world with the, the best of modern technology. Mm. So, you know, he has, he's able to hunt, he's able to grow his own food, he's able to kind of set his own schedule, but at the same time, he's got modern medicine, he's got, I presume, heating and cooling, he's got a nice car. Um, and it was kind of a reaction to people saying, well, you know, hunter gatherers, that's just living in caves, you know, that's, right. that's that kind of attitude. And, uh, at the time, um, I put something up on my blog saying, uh, this is the closest I'm ever going to come to being on Joe Rogan or tangentially speaking. <laughs> and little did I know, uh, well, so it, it is, it's kind of a surprise. That's cool. I, let, let's see if this leads to you being on Rogan show. 
get you a flight to Texas. <laughs> yeah, I heard he's moving to Austin. It's kind of surprised. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he's, I don't know, he's got connections down there through Onnit and Aubrey Marcus and that whole crew. Um, so I don't know if that's why, but I think probably state income tax has a good bit to do with it as well. Yeah, but if you're making a hundred million dollars, I don't know. Tax is really a concern at that point. I mean, uh, you know, it's a funny thing. The people I know who are most concerned with taxes are the people who are making the most money. You know, it it should work that way. It's like I got so much fucking money, I don't need to worry about this. But instead, I think the way it works is, you know, okay, I'm getting this big payday, and a what? They want twenty million dollars? Oh my god, it's a lot of money. Like. Yeah, it's a lot of money, but, you know, the context is is all important, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that is ironic. I don't think I've ever, I don't even know what I pay in taxes. I, I don't, I, what am I going to do about it, right? So yeah. I, I don't really care that much. Yeah, exactly. So uh, as you mentioned, uh, you came to my attention on the Reddit thread, and I've been really you know, that Reddit thread, by the way, I don't know much about Reddit because that's the only thing I ever look at on Reddit. Um, but my understanding is that Reddit is kind of the cesspool of the Internet, um, you know, full of all sorts of hate crimes and trolls and horrible people. But that Reddit community is so fucking inspiring. Uh, every time I look in there, people, you know, even when people get into disputes, often it'll be like, it resolves with like, oh, you know, I didn't realize what you meant and I see your point now and, you know, I was having a bad day. I didn't mean to be a douche. And it was like, it's all this really kind, um, just just high-minded exchanges going on. And uh, your presence there is a big part of that. I've I've really appreciated your thoughtful comments over the years. And it's a reflection of uh, the subject matter, which is you. So you have a, a big a part of that as well. Um, but I think, yeah, with Reddit, it's definitely you want to curate it. Um, I don't go on there. I wouldn't say I go on there very much. It's a it's a good way to get a pulse of the culture and maybe to learn some things you otherwise wouldn't. Right. But my advice would be to stick to this the small small communities that are kind of out of the way. Um, and so yours is like that. There are a couple of others that I, that I occasionally go on, hmm. uh, when I'm bored, but, uh, that's, that's the way to do it. But if you go on to more of the general areas, I mean, there's some, yeah, there, there's some not so great stuff up there. Um, yeah. I and mean, every time I see it, Reddit mentioned in, uh, mainstream media, it normally has something to do with, you know, QAnon or some sort of, you know, hate group or something that finds a home on Reddit. Yeah, and then they go somewhere else, and then, uh, you know, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's strange world. I, I On the other hand, I find, are you on Twitter? I am not. Yeah, I find Twitter to be much le- similar to Reddit. I find it to be much less oppressive than than a lot of people seem to think. Maybe that's just because when anyone shows any indication of being uh, uncool, I block them. So it's a very curated, filtered kind of world, which I don't know, maybe that's not a good thing to do, uh, on a large scale, but it certainly makes my life easier. Yeah, that's, that's probably a good idea. Um, I, I usually get my internet presence from, uh, blogging. 
Uh, most people, if, if they do know me, uh, that's where they know me from. Um, and I've been writing that since, uh, I think, 2013. What's the name of the blog? Uh, it's called The Hip Crime Vocab. Right, which is also your Reddit uh, name. Yeah, and yeah. that probably leads to an explanation of where that name comes from. Yeah, um, please. It's, it's from a uh, 1968 book called Stand on Zanzibar uh, by John Brunner. And uh, in that book, there's a number of characters who have written books inside of the book. And uh, one of them is a, uh, he's described as a radical sociologist named Chad C. Mulligan, um, which is not my last name, uh, but it's close enough. And uh, he's got several books in there. Uh, one of them is called You Beast. Another one is called You're a Complete Idiot, which is also a good name for a blog. Uh, and... <laughs> One was called uh, the Hip Crime Vocab, and uh, when I was trying to start a blog back back in the day, uh, I didn't know what to call it. And it's a surprisingly hard thing to do to try and figure out what to call a blog because I wasn't trying to say this is the political blog or this is the economics blog or this is this and that or this is any point of view. I was a lot of the reasons I write is to figure things out, and I thought, well, radical sociology, uh, that's kind of cool. So. Um, it's kind of a catchy title. Uh, so that's what I, I looked it up. No one was really using it, so I took it. And that's uh, become kind of an alias for me. So um, I've been writing there, and uh, I've had a few posts go viral or went viral at one point in time. And it's always weird because, speaking of Reddit, you know, you go on Reddit and you see people posting things, and it still trips me out when people I see a post that I wrote. <laughs> it's kind of... Yeah, strange. It is strange. I had uh, a very bizarre experience the other day. Um, You know, I'm kind of used to seeing my name come up on the Internet. I have these Gmail search things. So I get a a sort of a diary of if my name comes up or anyone who has my name, which is a lot of people getting arrested, doing horrible things named Christopher Ryan. Um, But uh, somebody sent me an email. I guess it was a guy who listens to the podcast and he just said, Hey, I was watching porn and, um, your name comes up <laughs> and he sends me this link to this porn site. And it's, uh, a woman just masturbating. It's like a cam sex kind of thing. Like only fans, I think it's called, which I guess, you know, it's, I don't know. But anyway, someone ripped it off and put it on Pornhub or one of those. And uh, so this woman is masturbating and she she's she's really funny, too, because she like you can tell she hasn't prepared anything. She just turned on the camera and she's like, oh, let me get my vibrators. And she pulls out her vibrator. She's got three different vibrators and the battery's dead on all of them. So (laughs) that didn't work out. So then she gets this uh, Hitachi magic wand that you plug into the wall and she starts using that. And she says, um, oh, listen, uh. I'm really loud, by the way, when I come, just a fair warning. And, uh, oh, I've been reading this book, Sex at Dawn, recently that says the reason women are loud when they come is that and she goes through this whole thing and she's lying there naked in bed with this vibrator. And it's like, this is the funniest, coolest book endorsement any author has ever received. You know, I can't imagine yeah. anything. So I actually wrote to her because uh, she's on, on Instagram. I wrote to her. I was like, hey, somebody sent me a link to this. And she was like, oh, my God, this is the funniest message I've ever received. 
<laughs> so yeah, yeah, strange to have to be out there in the world and not know what people are doing or saying or thinking. So what's your? Yeah. What, where are you? You're in Wisconsin or someplace like I, that? I am in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Right. And is that where you grew up? Uh, that is where I grew up. Yes, I've been uh, stuck here ever since, as I tell people. Um, yeah. So. We were supposed to have the Democratic National Convention here this year. Uh, that's not going to happen. I think it's online or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So what's well, that was the, a little excitement. What's What's your life like? Tell me about the life of Chad. Uh, I was hoping you weren't going to ask that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I've, I've never unicycled across the Gobi Desert. I, I haven't I hang glided off of Machu Picchu. Uh, not I've yet. I've Niagara Falls. Uh, soon, Chad, soon. Yeah, I, I hope so soon. But uh, given the uh, just the average person on this podcast, uh, it's, it's a little intimidating. Uh, I'm probably the most boring person you've ever interviewed. Uh, that's what I was hoping we'd stick to intellectual topics, but yeah, um, well, that's fine. What, yeah, but what, uh, occupies your intellect? Well, um, I, I guess kind of the, um, what, what readers may be interested in and what, what, uh, drew me to your work was I was kind of interested in these long changes of, uh, you know, you know how you've talked about the hunter-gatherer lifestyle, for example, and you talked about the changes that civilization brought, that suddenly people had to work harder, people had these kings and princes and and pharaohs and potentates and all that, and and the living standards declined and, and all these kind of things. And one of the things that interested me was, uh, how did that happen? I mean... It, you know, you've got kind of this one state and then you've got this second state, which is worse. I mean, now we live so far away from it, but in the immediate aftermath, it was worse. And the question was, you know, how, how did how did one transition from the other? Um, how did that happen? So that was one thing I, I was interested in and generally being interested in long term changes um, how did we go from a pre-capitalist society to a capitalist one? Um, how did we go from a society where children worked all the time to one where they didn't? Uh, you know, these kinds of changes. Um, so I just started writing down what I was finding, uh, probably writing down too much. Sometimes I can, I can go on. Um, but I, I just started writing down what I was uh, seeing about that and to try and work it all out and maybe get a little bit closer to to an answer to that question and where are you now well i i wouldn't say i have an answer but uh there is a lot of interesting anthropological literature kind of describing that process that it's it's as i'm sure you've, you've read a lot of anthropological papers and they and they are not fun to read a lot of times um, it's almost like they're trying to obfuscate what they're trying to say. Mm. But if you can translate it to English, they do have some interesting um, insights into that. But one insight I got was the, kind of the same way that the wealthy, the wealthy couldn't maintain their wealth if we didn't all kind of buy into them having that wealth, you know. Mm. Um, so it's pretty obvious that that would have been true then. Uh, there's always some kind of ideology that justifies it. Um, and there's always a sense that, okay, they're taking this lion's share, but we're getting some kind of benefit 
for all of this wealth that they're taking. Um, and that may be the, the case, that may not be the case, but people will leave it. And so long as they do, uh, this allows the system to continue. And so the question, so presumably what happened was that they convinced people that they, uh, the benefits of having this class of people was better than the alternative, that the overall society would be richer and everyone would be better off. Right. And you kind of have the same philosophy today where we're all better off because we have these billionaires. Um, and if we didn't have them, we would be worse off. You hear that all the time. Like, a, well, if we didn't have wealthy people, we'd all be equally poor or something like this. Job creators. And yeah, right. We create the jobs with our demand. You know? <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, yeah. So... So this kind of philosophy, I, I always look at what people who, who are really into defending the justification of extreme wealth inequality, what are they thinking? And that gives you an insight into what they were thinking then, you know, because people change in some ways, but in some ways the social instincts remain the same over time. Yeah. So what do you, you know, it's, this is interesting. I was um, doing a, a, an interview this morning with Rutger Bregman. Do you know who he is? Oh, you know work? I know exactly who he is. Yes. Interesting dude. And we talked about this because his first book um, published in English is called Utopia for Realists. And uh, I actually quoted from that book at the beginning of Sex at Dawn as an example of um, the sort of misguided neo-Hobbesian view of the world. Because in that book, he says, uh, let's begin with a little history lesson. Uh, the past was worse than the present, much mm -hmm. worse. He says, you know, er everyone was, the vast majority of people were poor, unhappy, overworked, you know, had horrible diets, he even says they were ugly, which <laughs> I was like, how are you calling people ugly in the past, man? Um, but then the book he just published uh, about a year ago um, is called, um, what's it called? Humankind. Humankind, exactly. Yeah, I was thinking homo sapien kind. Uh, yeah, humankind. And he's turned 180 and uh, he now acknowledges that, no, that it wasn't the whole past. It was just the historical past in which hmm. people were living much worse than today. And in fact, prehistory, people were living arguably better than the average person lives today. So we... Yeah, go ahead. It's, it was, was an that interesting first conversation. Quote, was that first quote intended to be a parody of that view, or was it? Was he serious? No, he was serious. He and we talked about that, and he was like, "Yeah, I've changed my views a lot. Um, you know, I used to think people like Steven Pinker were right about human nature, and uh, you know, in the past few years, I've realized that they're totally wrong." And then we got into this discussion of, you know, why? What motivates? these apologists for the status quo, which is what you were just referring to there, right? What is the, you know, underlying motivation for people who argue that, no, no, things are getting better. Things are fantastic. There's no reason to rebel against the way things are going right now. What What's your take on that? What do you think motivates them? Yeah, I, th I think you mentioned something interesting. And, and recently you were talking about how this, this, Darwinian narrative of competition tends to be emphasized 
because it tends to feed into what capitalism is, is that we're all competitors. We're all competing for a limited pool of jobs. Uh, businesses are competing for market share. Um, we're all just kind of in competition for one another and uh, an evolutionary narrative based on uh, survival of the fittest tends to fit into that. And uh, in reality, competition in nature is pretty expensive. It's done in some arenas, but in most arenas, if you had a, a group of animals that were just competing for everything all the time, they, they just wouldn't exist. I mean, they would have killed themselves off. You know, it, it would be like a vat of scorpions or something. It just wouldn't wouldn't exist. So really, cooperation has been the more important of the of the things that have kept us going. And uh, I saw I saw another podcast with him. And I think he was emphasizing that same idea. In fact, I was going to suggest him for the show, but uh, now I don't have to. Yeah, he's he's on. Yeah, got him. He's yeah. It's interesting too because you know he uh, started off by saying. Um, that when he read Civilized to Death, he had this uncanny sense that somehow I had read his manuscript. Um, and I had exactly the same feeling when I was reading his work. I was like, come on, you're using all the same sources as me. You're ripping me off, dude. But, you know, the book, his manuscript was uh, published in Dutch a month before my book came out. So there's no way it happened either way. I don't read Dutch. And he had no access to my book. So it's, it's, uh, it's just funny how that happens. You get an idea and you end up tracking down a lot of the same sources and, you know, uh, quoting from the same people. Yeah, I know that I've, I've written uh, several posts, uh, a few years ago. And then years later, someone would come out with a, a book that was the same kind of idea I had on a post. And I'm thinking, why didn't I, you know, why didn't I expand on that? One of the, when I first started blogging, one of the um, few bits of encouragement I got, I wrote a big long series on uh, Japan and whether Japan was predicting the future. And I posted it on uh, Morris Berman's uh, blog. Mm. And uh, he actually wrote me back and he said, uh, this stuff's really good. You should uh, write a book. And I didn't know at the time he was writing a book on Japan, which he's since published. Uh, or neurotic beauty it's called um, but that was encouraging to hear from someone who who uh, you know is a, a pretty well-known author uh, saying hey this is good writing especially when it was like the first few months I was blogging it's kind of like well it's that's yeah. a good sign very um, good he's a great yeah. I, I love wondering God uh, his book was very important yeah. for me yeah I don't know if you can get him on the podcast but that would be a that would be a, a great show you know what? I've actually uh, corresponded with him uh, about being on the podcast years ago, but when I only did it in person, you know, like I need to recalibrate everything now with this fucking virus now that I'm doing these remote interviews because uh, right. he's in like Guadalajara or somewhere down in Mexico. Yeah, he's somewhere in Mexico. Yeah. And he's uh, he tends to suggest uh, getting out of the United States. Obviously, he did that. And a lot of people are thinking about that now. So I don't know if there's a benefit to that, but, um, yeah, as for other ideas, one, one idea I had was, um, it was called Walmart is a planned economy. And I thought there's this economic idea that you can't possibly plan out all of these complex pieces in an economy. 
And I thought, well, Walmart kind of proves that's wrong like every day. They know exactly how many, roughly how many widgets they need, how many blenders they need to have in Kansas City and, you know, what's approximately going to sell and how many they need to order from their factories in China. And I thought they kind of prove that you kind of could have internally, I mean, they sell everything. They sell food, they sell um, goods, they sell diapers, they sell you name it. And they kind of coordinate it all, almost like uh, like a super socialist kind of thing. And somebody wrote a book called the uh, the United, uh, what was it, the People's Republic of Walmart, I think it is, mm. where they pointed out the exact same thing. I'm sure they did it more intellectually and had more sources. Um, but I also wrote a lot about something called neo feudalism, which was kind of the way I saw society headed. And uh, it's a guy called Joel Kotkin. And he just published a book about neo-feudalism, basically, that, that that's what he's seeing coming in the United States. So uh, it, it is kind of weird to see, like, books coming out over kind of these fragments of ideas that I had years ago. Do you have any interest in writing a book yourself? Yeah, I've, I've tried it, uh, and it hasn't gone that well. Um, so I don't know if you have any advice for writing books. What I find is that when I try and sit down to write a book, um, it's hard, but when I write a blog post, it's easier. Like I'll try and write out a chapter and then I'll feel like I should summarize this chapter for a blog post and the summary will always be better than what I wrote. Hmm. So I just end up putting it up there, but there's no like theme. I mean, if you went through my archives, there's certain themes that reoccur throughout it. But there's not really, for a whole book, you really have to sustain a single theme. I remember you mentioned that you had, when you wrote Civilized to Death, you had several themes in mind. And you kind of had to push some of them off and just kind of focus on one. Mm, Yeah, yeah. I I actually had sort of, and this is a mistake. I'm not uh, advising you to do this or anyone else. But I I had two books in mind when I started. And... um, yeah, and I, I never – I think one of the reasons that it took me so long is that, that as I was writing, I kept wanting to hold on to both books and, and somehow try to make them be one book, but they were sort of diverging. It was like I had you know, one foot in the boat and one foot on the dock, and the, the boat started drifting, and I was just like, oh, shit, what am I going to do? And, by the, and then it becomes too late to choose one. You know what I mean? Your, your legs are so yeah. spread, you, it's too late to get on the dock or the boat. That's kind of where I was, I think. And, um, you know, and then those two, two things also split into other things. So it becomes very, it, it becomes hard. A, a book like that that's about a big idea, I think, is very hard to keep focused um, same thing they tell you about dissertations. You know, if you do a doctoral dissertation, the classic mistake everyone makes is they pick a really big topic because they're interested in it mm. and they don't recognize how crazy it's going to be to try to write a dissertation about, you know, something that big. So you need to pick something that seems really small um, because you're going to dig down deep. So it's more of a vertical thing than a horizontal thing. Um at least that's that's the way it seems. But I don't like that. I like horizontal thinking. So, you know, both my books are kind of rambling, you know, chaotic messes. But um, 
<laughs> I blame that on the editor. <laughs> yeah, that's actually good advice because the th book I was trying to write was uh, how about the history of the whole world? And it's yeah. a little big. It's a little that's large. A little big. Yeah, yeah. So I, I started writing. I thought, okay, I, I, the history of the world is big, but I'll just make it really quick, almost like the Cliff Notes version. So I started writing about human evolution. I figured there's a, there's a book called Maps of Time. Um, and it's this big history book by David Christian. And he starts with the Big Bang. So he really goes very far back. And though that's too far back. So I figured, okay, I'll start with what I would say is the beginning of the human race to split from chimpanzees and just kind of cover quickly the human evolution and qu pretty quickly realize, geez, this is, this is crazy. Um, so I, I did write, I did get up through uh, the beginning of Homo sapiens. Um, and then I'm starting to think, where am I going with this? Mm. This, is just, this is just too big. So again, they'll probably end up on, on the site. Um, but again, it's, it's that idea of, okay, how did these things change? You know, how, how did these vast pieces change over time? And I wanted to describe kind of how civilization got started how it got off the ground um and to counter a lot of exactly what you were talking about this idea that everybody in the past was poor everybody in the past was starving and ugly and all that kind of thing and i, I know you just read uh, the james c scott book uh, against the grain and one of the things that really blew me away about that book is i, I believe he says something like as late as 1600 a.d uh the majority of the people on the planet did not live in a state society. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. That struck me as well. Yeah. And so all of the history we have is of state societies, is of that minority of people. What about all those other people? What's going on there? What were their lives like? Yeah. Um, so you're taking this, these, this whatever percentage, 49% or 50% or 40%, you're writing about them, you're ignoring the majority of people on the planet. So you're just looking at this subset of people and, and you're looking at all of these things and saying, this is how life was before 1600. And you're ignoring most of the people on the planet. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I mean, the numbers are even more uh, skewed than that, because even in the state societies, in the same book, he, he talked about the fact that well over 75% of the residents of, of those societies tended to be slaves. So if we're talking about Rome or Greece or, you know, whatever, most Egypt, the vast majority of the people who live there, we're not hearing their stories. We don't know anything about them. You know, it's, right. it's, uh, it's, it's unbelievable. Did you read his previous book, The Art of Not Being Governed? Have you seen that one? I've... I've that one I don't know. I, I read Seeing Like a State. Uh, that one I don't know as well. Yeah, I haven't read Seeing Like a State. I'd like to. Um, but The Art of Not Being Governed is great because he really gets into this, the idea that if life under the state was so superior, why was everyone fleeing the state? Why were there so many laws preventing people from fleeing the state? And why were the armies out there rounding up people to drag them back into the state? Um, clearly, the, the life in the state was far inferior, and people were trying to get as far away from it as they possibly could. Yeah, people voted with their feet, and they left. And yeah, he says that in, in Against the Grain, too. Like, states had all this difficulty forming, because the question normally phrased is, 
Why did it take so long to get to this, these states, which presumes that that was an end goal that people wanted to get to, when the question really is, um, why did it happen at all when nobody really wanted it? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know my take on this, which the whole superorganism thing, um, I, I just feel like these are uh, Russian doll life forms, you know, that each life form in, in, incorporates and encapsulates the previous ones. And uh, I think that the state came to life as a living thing that, you know, chews up, devours human beings. And that's why it sucks them in. And that's why it demands that, uh, you know, through its religious teachings that uh, no sex other than reproductive sex is acceptable. And, you know, you got to churn out more people. It's strange. It's like, a, you know, eternal growth, similar to capitalism. Yeah. And then as the states grow, they displace all other forms of life uh, so that there's no place to go outside of it. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a good book called The Human Swarm um, by Mark uh, Moffat. Mm hmm. Uh, which I'm reading right now, which also talks about that. You'd probably enjoy that. That's a, a funny example of what you were talking about earlier, seeing your ideas pop up elsewhere. Uh, I had this idea when I was writing Civilized to Death, and, and I started writing about this superorganism idea. My editor said, uh, you probably heard me tell this story, but the editor said, like, hey, this is too much to just be a, like a chapter in this book. You're either going to have to write a book about this or whatever, but cut it out here. And I, so I did, I cut those chapters out and I saved them and I came up with a working title for that book, which was the human swarm. So then I saw that book come out and I was like, fuck that guy. That's my book. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I haven't read the book, but the, the title pissed me off enough that I didn't bother. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's the funny thing about titles, right? You can't copyright a title. So the whole time I was reading Against the Grain, um, I was confused because it looked like I downloaded it twice into my Kindle. I had it twice. And then I realized there's another book called Against the Grain that came out about the same time by a totally different author. Richard Manning. Yeah, I yeah, posted Richard him. Richard Manning, yeah. Yeah, I posted uh, some stuff about him on the Reddit site. And he lives in Missoula. I don't know where you are right now. I think you're in Montana, aren't you? Yeah, I am actually. I, I don't know how far Missoula is because I don't know that part of the country. But if you get to Missoula, that that is where he lives. I have no idea. I, I looked all over to try and find a uh, contact, like an email form, um, so that you could contact. Because he also, and I didn't know this before I started looking it up, apparently he grew up in a really right-wing fundamentalist household that he had to escape and he wrote a memoir about it and he ended up in Central America and then he ended up in um, Missoula and I know he's a big hunter and hmm. like it, it would gel with so many things that you talk about. Huh. Um, so he would be great. And if he's there, if he is in Missoula um, and you can get there, you could actually potentially do a face-to-face -face interview yeah. uh, with him. Yeah, that's a good idea. I'll uh, I'll check that out. I just talked to two days ago. I just did a, a podcast with Tim Cahill, who's um, one of the founders of Outside Magazine and an adventure writer, um, pretty prominent. So maybe he can put me in touch with Richard Manning. Maybe they know each other. He's he's also a Montana guy. Okay, 
Okay. Of, yeah. Maybe his publisher or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So what, uh, your, your interest is primarily in history. It sounds like you're, you're very wide, you know, economics, politics, uh, is there a particular what what are, I guess my question is what are the themes that you mentioned that sort of emerge in your blog over the years? What would you say are the threads that run through your writing? That's a good question. Uh, one one of them is something we talked about earlier, trying to uh, dispel this notion that everybody in the past was miserable and hungry and starving and and filthy. Um, there's a good retort to that that I always like to use, and I, I forget where I read it. But uh, it's it refers to the Gothic cathedrals, and I'm sure you've seen those. And uh, I always, the retort is, do, do these look like they were built by people who were starving? Mm. I mean, just look at them. Um, you lived in Spain. You know, all you walk around and you see thousands of years of history, um, aqueducts that are still running, you know, things like that. Really, everybody was, they built that and everybody was just trying to survive no, that that's clearly absurd. And um, that's why I'm kind of surprised Rutger Bregman thought that. Um, I guess it's a testament to how much uh, propaganda there is. Um, and another theme, when I really when I started writing it, I like a lot of people, I was interested into in technology and new things that were coming out, whether it was electric cars, whether it was hydrogen, whether it was this or that. And very quickly, I realized that the most important thing we need is not technology, because if we didn't invent uh, another thing from this day forward, we would have already invented enough to really transform this planet into a paradise. You know, we, we can already make electricity from sunlight. We have more food than we need. Um, we've got we can build housing enough for everybody. We've we don't need to invent anything else and we will invent new things but even if we didn't if we stopped right now for some imaginary reason we would have enough but at the same time look look around you so what became very apparent to me was that we need a different way of organizing society more than any kind of technical invention and so to understand how society's organized, you kind of need to go back and understand uh, how, how it got to be the way it is and understand how it was once another way. Um, and I, I blatantly stole the term Flintstonization. I, I love that so much. So hopefully I can get your official permission Oh, yeah. uh, to use to use that now I can officially ask you but that's just such a great phrase because it sums it up exactly people think that whatever is normal today a nine to five job you know uh, two parents working whatever that's the way it always was and when you go back into history and you go especially into anthropology which is really it's history but it's history of cultures that are kind of outside the mainstream and you realize that it's it's all just it's contingent right it, there's all sorts of different ways of, of organizing things like even something as simple as what can be owned what's property it's completely different uh and completely different even in our own culture even if you go back several hundred years very very different so once you realize that you realize okay the, the social order it is, as it is today it's not fixed it's it, it's arbitrary in a lot of ways and uh 
so I try and, and when I find something like that, and a lot of it's just, I think they had everything figured out in the 1800s, or at least by the 1970s, because a lot of it is just going back and reading old books that nobody reads anymore and realizing, oh, hey, they, they kind of knew what was going on back then. Um, and just try and translate it, make it a little bit more modern, summarize it, but let people know that this, the, the way we organize society is fluid. It's always changing, uh, and it can be different. Uh, and I think a lot of people just can't conceive of anything outside of what we have now. You, you see this with like the, the debate of should we have a 40-hour work week or should we reduce it? Um, why shouldn't we reduce it? I mean, in the past, economists thought we would be working 15, 20 hours a week. Uh, there's a lot of people who, when they're really honest, admit it. I work 20 hours a week, but I pretend it's 40 because I need to clock in. Mm-hmm. And you realize that the 40-hour work week, that, that began when the factory because the machines had to run and they had to make money. Well, we don't work in factories anymore, but we've got this factory mentality as if we do. Everything's set up for that. You know, whether we're working, whether it's the education system, whether it's the 40-hour work week, um, it, it really, we're kind of stuck in this paradigm that doesn't fit anymore. And we have this this cultural uh not inertia. What's the opposite of inertia? Yeah, maybe it is inertia. Inertia that means just both. That's the yeah. thing. Inertia means the movement and the stasis. So, yeah. And the state. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 yeah uh, so, yeah. so once you realize that, and history is a good guide to that. Okay. The 40-hour the work week, that actually came in uh, during the Depression. It was a reduction in hours. But we were wealthier, in quotes, wealthier today than we were back then, even though we work less. Um, I saw a statistic that really blew me away. I don't know if you've heard this, but the average American, they could just stay home for two months away from their job. And they would still work the same hours as the average German. And Germany is a pretty wealthy country, I'm pretty sure. Um, So what are we getting for that extra month of work? Yeah. Yeah, good question. Uh, ulcers and uh, high high blood pressure, I think, primarily. Yeah, traffic accidents and, and depression. Uh, yeah, yeah, depression. Yep. Yeah. Um, back pain. Back, exactly. You were you were talking about um, the, the how social structures are fluid and uh, and I was. I imagined a river and I was thinking, okay, a river is fluid, but it's also headed in a certain direction. Um, and do you have a sense that history is moving in a certain direction or do you think it's totally arbitrary? Uh, I don't think it's moving in a direction. Um, it, you know, past cultures always thought of things as cyclical and the idea of history going in a direction is a really, I think it came in with the Enlightenment. And it's, it tends to be a very American thing, isn't it? I know this is a recurring theme that comes up a lot, is that we're, our destiny is to go to Mars, mm. and we're on this journey from the caves to the stars, and it's endless progress. And this seems to really be in, like an American thing. Like, would you say that, or, or would you say, like, it tends to be more of, of a frontier America thing. Like we always need a frontier and now, now it's Mars or everything's going to get better because all of America existed in this unprecedented time 
during the Industrial Revolution where there are these massive inventions where you go from, you know, the speed of a horse to a train or you go suddenly from communicating via the Pony Express and suddenly the the uh, telegraph is invented like a, a year later or suddenly then there are cars or suddenly there's the first flight and before you know it, it's supersonic, you know, all in the 20th century. So we just kind of go, well, we're just going to extrapolate that out. Yeah. And that's why everybody thought we'd be living on the moon. But in reality, technology produces diminishing returns. Um, so and diminishing returns are pretty much with everything. If you get out of the desert and you're thirsty, nothing's going to beat that first cup of water. After three or four or five, it's not as good anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to illustrate this with insulation. You know, if you put a, an inch of insulation, that's going to be the biggest bang for your buck. Every subsequent inch is going to give you less insulation value, but still going to cost money. Mm. So in reality, there's only so much. Everything produces diminishing returns. Even if you're if you've got an engine, it can only be 100 percent efficient. Hmm. And the closer you get to 100%, the more work you've got to do to squeeze out that 1% or 2%. Hmm. Whereas you first invent an engine, it's maybe 2% efficient. You jump that up to 25% pretty quickly. Then when you get really high, like 90, then you've got to spend huge amounts of money just to eke out a few percentage points. And so really, when you add more and more technology, you're getting a diminishing return. You're not getting an increasing return. Interesting. And we see that in, in things like, you, you know, the example you used going from uh, walking to horseback to trains to automobiles to airplanes to jets. But jets aren't going any faster than they went 30 years ago. That's plateaued. Yeah. In fact, the fastest human beings have ever moved was in the 1970s. Uh, it was one of the Apollo programs. Huh. That still to this day is the record for the fastest humans have ever moved. Interesting. Um, yeah, yeah fact, I, I saw somewhere. That, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, somewhere that trains could. It was faster to get to a train destination in the 1920s than it is today. Wow. So, huh. interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's very interesting uh, plateauing of technology. I I like the way you explain that with insulation. I never thought about it that way. I always think about it in terms of wine, but I guess that that tells us something about you and me. You're, yeah. You're, does, well, I'm an architect by profession. There you so go. That's why. And I'm, that's why I'm Irish. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I had a chuckle. I, I I don't know when this is going out, but in a previous episode you just had, you were you were on a rant about two by fours not it, being two by four. Right. Right. Did, did you really just find that out? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I, I, I joke because, like, it's it's a kind of a, a, a tease in architecture school, like getting out of architecture school and not realizing a two by four isn't really two by four. <laughs> and it, it, in fact, nominal dimensions uh, almost are always different than actual dimensions. Yeah, like a yeah. two inch pipe isn't two inch, and I, I thought that was like it's deception. It's yeah. Against us. Well, I, I, I thought mean, you were going go. Go ahead. I thought you were going to go on a rant about the metric system. Well, I mean, maybe the reason I didn't know two by fours aren't two by four is that I've lived in Spain for so long where two by four isn't a thing, right? So you're not, you, oh, right. you don't go to a lumber shop and ask for a two by four. So it never occurred to me. Uh, and uh, since I've been in the U.S., I guess I haven't really been building much. So 
when I went to get the two by fours and then was sketching out, you know, I had sketched out the, the design and then the two by fours were like, wait a minute, this is all wrong. Cause these aren't two by four. What the fuck? I have to redo the whole thing. Um, yeah, it just sort of seemed somebody wrote to me and said that the reason they're not two by four is that that's the dimension at which they're cut before the wood is cured. And so it, it shrinks when it's cured. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. So there you go. Yeah. But I would, I would imagine that living in the metric world, I, I looked up the other day who uses imperial units. It's the United States, Liberia, and Myanmar. Oh, great. Yeah. Interesting collection of countries there. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think that's a metaphor for the wrong turn we took in 1980, you know. And yeah. Carter was trying to bring us into the metric system, and Reagan just said, fuck the world, you know, we're we're America. So that that's what brought us here, where we are now. So getting getting back to this question of of the flow of history and and the you know, sort of arbitrary nature of social structures. How are you feeling about the potential for the coronavirus uh, to shock us in such a way that we can reconfigure in a in a better way? Do you think there's a a, a positive potential in a pandemic or a war? Or isn't it normally some sort of a crisis that weakens the dominant system that allows a new system to take its place? Yep, it should. Um it's not doing it. Um, it it's kind of sad right now. Uh, so you're probably familiar with this, but when the Black Death happened uh, and it wiped out a lot of the population, there was an increased demand for labor. And so people were able to, there was a, the same pie was there, but there were more less people going after the pie. So everybody could get a bigger slice. Um, and suddenly there was a lack of labor. So people were able to demand what they could get. You know, they could get paid more. Um, if you're trying to keep them in, in a feudal situation connected to the land, how could you do that? There weren't enough people to keep them there. So it led to a transformation in in in, uh, in Europe, which led to, you know, eventually it led to capitalism. It led to early modernity. But the coronavirus, it really should. I mean, it should. It should show that, Things like universal basic income are necessary. It should show that uh, tying healthcare to a job is absolutely insane. Um, it should demonstrate the need for uh, sick pay and for sick people not to come to work. Um, but the, the resistance against it is is quite staggering. And there's a, there, there's kind of a thought that the reason we don't have those things is because the, the government doesn't want us to realize that they could do all these things, right? So the government can cover coronavirus, why, and prevent someone from going broke because they have coronavirus. Couldn't the government also stop someone from going broke because they have cancer? Of course they could, but they don't want us to know that. Um, so there's a big pushback right now, uh, trying to stop the obvious conclusions from being drawn. Um, I, I had written a while back that I thought like, the, the amount of people really needed to keep society going is only like 25%. And I probably lowballed it, but what we saw was that it's clearly not everybody who's working now. Um, I, I saw there's a, there's a funny meme going around saying that the economy is collapsing because we're only buying what we need. Yeah. 
which is kind of stunning if you think about it. Uh, So there's a lot of work. There's a lot of jobs that are just there for people to earn money. Um, You know, bullshit jobs. Bullshit Um, jobs. Yeah. Have you read that? Yeah. You read? I have not. No. No. no, Yeah, I'd like to get him on the podcast as well, David. David Graeber, that, that Graeber. would be awesome. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that he's, would be awesome. He's an anarchist, too, apparently, uh, lives in the UK. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, Chad, I have uh, I have to break off now because there's a, something at 4.30 that I need to, to go and do, and it's 4.29 in Montana. Um, All right. But, uh, you know, I would encourage you, I, I, do you have a, a mailing list? Uh, mailing list, no. No, because, you know... Uh, like the kind of work that you're doing on your blog, I'd love to look at it. I'm sure a lot of people would love to look at it, but you know, I don't remember to go and check people's blogs cause I got so much shit coming at me. But if I got a, like an email from you once a month, just saying like, Oh, okay, this month I, you know, I talked about this and I did a post on this and that, and you had a link to those posts that would remind me to go, Oh, I'm interested in this one. Let's go check it out. I don't know if if that's something you feel like doing, but um, if you did, yeah, I think some people have suggested Substack. I think that's uh, something that does that. You know, send out a newsletter. Mm. Um, but yeah, that would be that's a good idea. Yeah, well, if you do it, I'll probably post this in I don't know six six weeks or something. If you do it between now and then, I'll link to it. Okay, how's that for some motivation? <laughs> that, that sounds good or is it just a pain in the ass i don't know it's hard to tell right. the difference sometimes yeah yeah can i ask you one quick question of course kind of a per, kind of a self-serving question before sure. we go sure um i mentioned i'm kind of trying to get out of where i'm living now mm-hmm. where should i go <laughs> i know that's a huge question but um you know i i don't really know where would be a good place to go do you have any any thoughts on that well, maybe that's something we should talk about separately um, because it depends what you're looking for. I do have some right. ideas. I mean, there's certainly places that I go to on this van trip every year that are, you know, beautiful. Um, if you're talking about staying in the U.S., there are five or six different places I can think of that are uh, pretty high quality of life and pretty low expense. Um and then, of course, the whole question of if if you want to get out of the U.S., then that's a whole different thing, you know, like uh, right, right. I've got some ideas along those lines as well. But yeah, yeah. Can we even leave the U.S. now with the coronavirus? Good I think question, we're kind of stuck man. here. Good question. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about that uh, offline. And because uh, I'd want to ask you a few questions about, you know, what you're actually looking for and you know, what your resources are. So, right. Um, and also the, there's a little town where I've bought some land. You've probably heard me talking about it. And I, I haven't really talked about it very publicly on the podcast yet because I'm trying to give my, uh, sort of inner circle, uh, friends a chance to grab a spot, uh, before I talk about it on the podcast, but, um, that's another possibility. So we'll talk offline. All right, Chad, thanks for doing this. Uh, the blog is hipcrimevocab.com. Is that how That's it works? Correct. All right. And uh, you'll see Chad on the Reddit, tangentially speaking, subreddit, if you're on there. Thanks for doing this, man. And uh, uh, Thanks thanks for having me on. Yeah, I hope I hope you weren't nervous for the whole thing. You seemed to relax 10 minutes into it. 
Oh, could you tell the nervousness? <laughs> I, I know you laugh, but you you are the most famous person I've ever spoken to about being famous. So yeah, it is a little. There is a little nervousness there. Uh, yeah, well, it's all bullshit. You, you know it. I know it. We all know it. All right, brother. Thanks. Yeah. For, thanks for doing this. All right. Thank you. All right, <clears throat> me again. Just wanted to drop in real quickly to let you know that I got an email from Chad the other day. Uh, saying that he started a Substack. He's He's got a blog on Substack. So if you want to read some of his work, you can go to hipcrime.substack.com. Uh, first series of posts are on The Human Swarm, the book that he mentioned in our conversation. He talks about hunter-gatherers. And uh, yeah, he's a damn good writer. So go check him out. If you like the cut of his jib, uh, I hope you'll enjoy that. All right, now it's time for Mom and Carsey. Thanks for listening, and I will catch you next week or in a few days. Who knows? Okay, Mom, uh, tell people what they can order from the garage. Okay, in our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of T-shirts. Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death, Vanthropology, Tangentially Speaking, Paleo Modern, and Talking Out of My Ass. (laughs) She didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies or koozies or whatever they're called. Oh, civilized to death. Design. They're all civilized That's right. to death. We have stickers and car decals, right? Yes. Okay. There you have it. That's Julie, my mom. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say You're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't wanna give the end away But we're gonna die one day Your body is an animal Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play? Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say
gonna take you up in my arms And if we must go down We'll go singing to the smoke alarms We'll dance into the ground 